Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to a Monday morning devotional. I was gone last week at the lake. Good to be back. Um, for those of you who are watching on Facebook Live, uh, I would like to address the elephant in the room. The mustache didn't make it. Actually, uh, I think it was the next morning I was shaving. And when you don't have facial hair, you could shave in the shower because you don't need to see what you're shaving. And I shaved off like a quarter of my mustache on this side. And I went out to Sarah to see if I could salvage it. And at that point it was either that I have to match and cut and then I have a Hitler stash or if I hope no one notices my lopsided peach fuzz. So I decided to just get rid of all of it. So it was a, a wonderful idea with short-lived glory. Uh, anyway, something that does not have short-lived glory is the story of Jesus. And we are finally in the F260 Bible reading plan. We are in the New Testament, which is exciting. But I do want to say, uh, if you are a uh, if, if you're a Bible reader who has grown up in the church, grown up with Bible stories, invocation Bible school, Sunday school, all those things, um, the New Testament is both a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because here we get to see um, probably the clearest application of redemption in Scripture for us as New Covenant believers. We're in the Old Testament. We're seeing these shadows, these signs, these foreshadowings, these prophecies. Um, and when we read that, we really force ourselves to actually do the difficult work of, you know, wrestling through it, trying to consider what this means in light of the gospel, how we can apply this to our life. But when it comes to the New Testament, um, sometimes we put on these glasses to where we've heard this before and we don't pay attention to it as we ought to. And so uh, just a caution, word of caution for us who are reading the New Testament, uh, we can uh, have a proclivity to say, I know this story. And I know what it's saying. And I've heard it in Sunday school. I've, I've read about this miracle before. And we kind of uh, shortchange ourselves from wrestling with it in the same way we wrestle with the Old Testament. Um, but we have to seek to rightly divide God's word regardless of where it's at in the canon and do the hard work of chewing on it for ourselves. And so we don't want to assume uh, familiarity with God's word uh, just because we've read it once that we know it now. So that's the, a disclaimer for the New Testament. Um, we looked at a lot of the birth accounts last week. We read the first few chapters of all four Gospels. Uh, most recently, we finished with John on Friday. And today we are in Matthew um, chapters three and four. Matthew's writing to a distinctly Jewish audience. His kind of main point, as we'll see him unpack through the rest of Matthew or however long we're in Matthew, is he is trying to convince the Jews that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ, the, which means the anointed one, the one whom they are waiting for to bring all of God's promises to redemption to his people. So we are in John 3 and 4 today, and what I want to do is give just a brief summary of what we're looking at, and then we're going to look at our three questions that are helpful for uh, supercharging our devotions in the morning when we don't have a lot of time. We could look at a text and we could look up, what does this passage show us about God, the Trinity, Christ, redemption, the gospel? Uh, what does this passage, or look in? So number two, what does this passage teach us about ourselves, about humanity, about our propensities? And then lastly, look out, how does this passage shape the way we live as Christians, churchmen, uh, husbands, wives, brothers, classmates, co-workers, all of that. Uh, so, Matthew chapter 3, it begins with John the Baptist preparing the way. So, John is out in the woods and he is preaching, preparing the way for the Christ to come. He is this prophetic forerunner um, to Jesus. And we actually see this contrast right away in terms of these baptism scenes with John, because first we see the Pharisees, who are the uh, kind of de facto leaders of the Jewish people at that time when it comes to religion. And these Pharisees, who the people would have seen as um, 
their teachers, these moral upstanding characters, they come to John. They're coming to his baptism, whether they intend to get baptized, whether they intend to hear it, we don't know, but they're coming to John's baptism. Uh, and we see that in verse seven. And John doesn't greet them with soothsaying words, appealing to the positions of power. Instead, he insults them. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, he is saying to these Pharisees, uh, you think you are the head of the God followers of the people of Israel, but you're not. And you're not because you don't have the fruit of repentance. And so here John is offering this baptism of repentance that we see in verse 11. And he's saying, you Pharisees aren't repentant. There's nothing in your life that shows that you need more grace. You're showing everybody that you have achieved perfection according to the law. You miss the weight of the law that you cannot meet this. And so we see this first interaction with John and the Pharisees where these people who are perceived to be perfect come to John and are chastised. And immediately, then Jesus came. The Pharisees came, and now Jesus comes to John. And the tables are totally flipped. Because where John looks at the Pharisees and he says, you guys need the baptism. Jesus comes and John says, I need the baptism. <laughs> um, Jesus comes to be baptized by John. And uh, John says, whoa, whoa, you're the Messiah. You need to baptize me. But Jesus says, no, uh, let it be so now, for it is thus filling to fill all righteousness. And then he's baptized. And then we see the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming and resting on him. We see a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. More on that screenshot in a moment. And then immediately after this baptism um, scene, Jesus goes into the desert. He is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And there in the devil, he, or there, excuse me, in the wilderness, he fasts 40 days and 40 nights, and there are three distinct temptations. And we're going to look at those temptations in a bit. But one, uh, Satan offers to give Jesus bread by the fruit of his own miracle. Two, uh, Satan brings him to the pinnacle of the temple and asks him to test God. Three, Satan brings him up to the, the peak of a mountain and offers to give him the whole world if he would just bow down and worship Satan. And at the end, Jesus says uh, that uh he should worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and the angels came and ministered to Jesus. And then we see at the end, we see Jesus' ministry. Three quick passages. That's uh, verses 12 through 17, verses 18 through 22, and verses 23 of to 25 of chapter 4. And this is just doing really three things for the readers of Matthew. It's defining Jesus' ministry by his message, by his men, and by his means. We see the prophetic role Jesus plays in verses 12 through 17 and the center of his message. What is the gospel according to Jesus? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's calling people to repent of their sins. Just as John was giving a baptism of repentance, Jesus is now proclaiming this repentance. And then we see his disciples. He calls uh, several of his disciples here with an effective calling. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they drop their nets and they follow him. And then lastly, we see the message of Jesus. We see the men who are following Jesus as disciples. And now we see the means that kind of typify Jesus' ministry through the rest of Matthew leading up until the passion in Jerusalem. And that is that he is wandering around teaching, proclaiming the gospel, working miracles, and people are beginning to recognize that they're bringing their sick to Jesus um, and uh, he is healing them and news is spreading not only in the Jewish country but also in the Decapolis so it's getting out into Gentile country as well and so this is kind of the the tip of the spear for Jesus's life and ministry 
in the Gospel of Matthew. And so here's what I want to do with our time remaining is we're going to look at our three questions. And so when it comes to looking up, what does this passage teach us about God? It teaches a ton about God. Um, and we see this primarily through Jesus in two ways. First, we see Jesus as the second person of the Trinity. Because here we have this baptism scene and we see God the Son being baptized, God the Father speaking audibly, and God the Spirit descending like a dove. And so he wasn't a dove. It was They're, they're trying to, if you look at the language, it's like, like a dove, appeared like a dove. Um, and so it's this uh, visible uh, epiphany that comes where it looks like a dove. And here we see Jesus is the eternal Son of God who has lived in eternity past as the second person of the Trinity for all eternity in the past. And here he is now in the flesh as Jesus Christ. And one thing I want to um, discuss here, which is important, is, is a question people often bring up. Well, if Jesus is sinless, if he is the Son of God, then why does he need to be baptized here? If John is offering a baptism for repentance and Jesus has no sin, why would he need to be baptized? Well, uh, it's the same question we ask at the cross. If Jesus has no sin, why does he need to die for sin? Well, it's because he's identifying in his role as the Messiah. Um, you're right. Jesus does not need to ask for forgiveness from sins. He does not need to be washed with repentance. But what we see here is that the triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, have so forth sent the Messiah, Jesus Christ, into the world to identify with the need of broken sinners. And so in this baptism of repentance, we're seeing a foreshadowing of the cross, that Christ is identifying with the need people have for forgiveness while himself being the means in which that baptism will come. And John already draws that distinction, right? He baptizes with water. Jesus is going to baptize with fire. So there's something different about this Jesus. And in being baptized, he is identifying with his messianic role to intercede on behalf of broken sinners, that he was going to bear the sin so that repentance could be possible. And in light of that mission, um, here we see something which is important. Uh, it was important in church history and it's important today. And it's something called modalism. Uh, modalism is this heresy that uh, God existed in the Old Testament as God the Father. And then when Christ was born, God existed as uh, the incarnate God-man, Jesus Christ. And then post-resurrection, God exists as the Holy Spirit now indwelling his church. And so instead of seeing three persons in one God, um, modalism sees God taking three forms in different epochs of history, if that makes sense. And so there was God the Father, he became God the Son, and now he's God the Holy Spirit. And this is um, kind of a modalism buster because we see all three of them concurrently interacting with each other in Scripture. We also see Jesus praying to God the Father to show that there's a sort of concurrent nature um, between the two persons. They're, they exist concurrently together. And you might say, well, why is this important for me? Is this just a theological debate? Well, this is central because if Jesus wasn't God, if there was no father and no spirit still alive, then it'd be difficult for Christ to make atonement um, because that wages of sin is not being accepted or validated by anyone. But more importantly, on a, on a pragmatic or a practical level, um, we should care about this because here we see all three persons of the Godhead actively involved in Jesus's messianic identity to take away the sins of his people. And why is this important? If you've ever watched, um, you know, movies, uh, generally some sports movies, there's, you know, a young high school kid who 
who's pursuing sports because he's had a rough childhood and he really wants his dad to kind of give him his affirmation of, uh, you're doing great, son, keep it up. And there's that scene where it's like, yep, it's the morning of the playoff game. And he says, dad, are you coming to the game? And his dad says, ah, oh, yes, son, I'll, I'll, I'll try to make it. And then ultimately the game comes that night and he, mom's in the stands and there's the vacant seat next to him. And the son looks up and he sees mom, but no dad. And there's this, this emotion the son gets that there's something more important to dad than me. There's something more important to dad than um, him coming and watching me play the game. And there are uh, heresies that have spun off of Christianity over the time that kind of sees Jesus as this faithful mom who wants to just come and cheer you on while God the Father has more better things to do. More better? Uh, where God the Father has better things to do, more important things to do. Um, but here we see that God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit are occupied with redeeming broken people. The entire Trinity is working in history right now as the climax of his creative energy of recreating a broken humanity, which means when God begins to work on your heart in salvation, that the fullness of God's power is at work. That means when you are wrestling in seasons of doubt and of dryness and of wrestling with sin, that you have the access not just to Jesus who got bored in heaven and wanted to come see if he could invent something of his own to kind of keep him occupied. You have the full utility of the wonderful, triune, radiant, holy God standing behind you, cheering for you, desiring to work salvation in you. And so seeing the Trinity in this passage is encouraging for us because it shows us that God in Jesus has fully, entirely, and pervasively drawn near to us. Um, the wonder of salvation is revealed in the Trinitarian work that goes into our salvation. Um, so that's the first thing we see. We see Jesus as the second person of the Trinity, uh, but we also see Jesus as our new head in the scripture. And this is important for us as we're coming out of reading the Old Testament. Matthew's probably the, the best gospel to read and coming out of the Old Testament because it relies so deeply on the, the Jewish imagery um, that was in the Old Testament. And there are kind of two representatives uh, in the Old Testament that Jesus now fulfills. And the first was Adam, who was tempted by the devil in the garden as this individual man. But then secondly, there's another testing. Um, there's corporate Israel, who is tested in the wilderness after deliverance from Egypt. And both Adam, when tempted by the devil, and both Israel, as a representation, when tempted in the desert, failed. And so all of Israel's representatives have failed in a similar testing like this. And so if we're watching at home, um, we have seen, you know, hopeful uh, protagonists come on the scene uh, and fail. And so here we see this new hopeful protagonist and right away we see the temptation that has undone all the protagonists beforehand and we say, oh no, is this Jesus just going to be another Israel, another David, another Adam, one who looks so promising but ultimately cannot endure. And here we see, no, Jesus is this new head and he goes into the desert and he is tempted by Satan and he is going to conquer Satan's temptations. He is going to pass the test that Adam as a federal head and Israel as a representative representative could not do. Jesus is the head we need par excellence, the one who cherishes God and helps us obey as well. And so there's uniquely three um, temptations in this showdown with Satan. All of them are really beneficial in understanding what we're going to look at when we look in. 
And Satan first tempts Jesus uh, with what I call worldly affirmation, okay? And so Satan comes and he says, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. And so what is Satan doing? He's saying, I want you, Jesus, to have, uh, I want you to have confidence. I want you to have a good identity that you are the son of God. I want to help you be affirmed that you are exactly who you say you are. If you would just turn these stones into bread. And Jesus refuses and he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, why is that important? Uh, sometimes we take that to, to see uh, just all of scripture that we should pay attention to God's word. And that's true. Uh, but remember the immediate context. What happened right before this testing? God spoke, right? So this is in verse, this is chapter four, verses one through four. But right before that, the last verse of 317 ends with God's word. God saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. In other words, Jesus is saying, I don't care if you affirm me, Satan, because God has affirmed me. And that's the only affirmation I need. God himself is pleased with me. Therefore, I do not need to worry about pleasing you in ways that might actually be showing because here's the thing, there's nothing wrong with Jesus turning rocks into bread, right? He multiplied bread. He multiplied fish. There's nothing wrong with this miracle. But at the heart of it, it would be Jesus wanting to have Satan's affirmation over and above the clear word of God, which he was just spoken to. He needed to value God and his validation. And he did. And so he passed the test of worldly affirmation. And then Satan brings him to a place of worldly vindication. Jesus knows that what lies ahead is going to be a ministry of being rejected by the Jewish people. And so what does Satan do? He brings him to the pinnacle of the temple, the center of Jewish identity. This is going to be the Times Square of modern day Jerusalem. And he says, Jesus, if you throw yourself off, there's a prophecy that says, if you're God's holy one, which we've already affirmed he is, uh, then these angels will sweep you up and a foot won't touch the ground. Why is Satan doing this? Because he's showing that um, if you do this here in the Times Square of Israel, all of these Jews, they won't reject you. They will see this wonderful miracle and they will say, there's not many guys who float after jumping off a temple. This must be God's Messiah. But Jesus knew, and here he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He knew that the way in which he was going to be seen as God's Messiah was not going to be through um, these miracles from the outside, but through faith on the inside and ultimately on the cross. And so he, he says, I don't need to be vindicated before men because I'll be vindicated before God. And then lastly, he brings him to this test of worldly glory. And this is the test I love where Satan brings him up on the mountain and he says, I will give you all of the world if you just bow down and worship me. And that's tempting because Jesus knew what lie ahead, right? Um, Jesus, as the Messiah, uh, knew that he was going to get all glory. That God was what God had promised him, that, that Christ was going to be exalted in his role as the Messiah. But at the end of that road was the cross. There was suffering, there was rejection, there was scorn, there was pain. And here Satan says, you could have all the glory without any of the pain. And what does Jesus say? He says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. You see, in light of all three of these things, Jesus passed the test of Satan by trusting God's plan over everything. Jesus knew that sin promises affirmation, vindication, and glory, but it is only God who can provide those to the fullest. He reveals the empty promises of sin by cherishing the plan of God for redemption. And all three of this, the passages Jesus quote all come from the book of Deuteronomy, which is the, 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 the 
capstone of the law. Deuteronomy is this book that shows God's covenant to bless his people, but also his covenant to punish sin. And here Jesus is drawing on that covenant and showing, I trust God's plan over the plans of this wolf. And that's what Adam needed to do. And that's what Israel needed to do. And that's what we need to do. But our sin gets in the way. But here is the man who beats sin. Here is the man who shows the lie of the devil. Here is Jesus, the one who we've been waiting for. And so in light of that, uh, now we begin to look in. And as Christians, uh, I want to go back to uh, the beginning of chapter 3 where these Pharisees come and John's cry to the Pharisees is bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, he's he's saying kind of what the law says. He says, if, if you're following God, show me this with your repentance. Show me this with your changed life. And the problem is, is that uh, they have no changed life. And so when it comes to us before God, that same command is there. Be holy as I am holy, says God. Uh, uh, we see in the New Testament that without holiness, no one will approach the Lord. And so this call to holiness, this call to resist sin shows our cosmic inability as humans, which is why this Jesus, this past testing, serpent crushing, wilderness winning Jesus is good news for us because he passed the test for us. And in salvation, we receive his grade. We receive his merits. And now he lives through us. It is no longer I who live, but Christ in me, Paul says. And so here's this wonderful truth for us that we have the ability to resist sin, not because we have something, uh, we have a great power, but because Christ's power dwells in us because we have seen that Jesus has beaten sin and now by his power we can say no to sin too and what's interesting is Jesus is going to give some helpful tips for um for beating sin and in fact really in the near future here in Matthew you know if if uh flee sexual immorality Paul says that in the New Testament in Matthew 5 he's going to talk about uh, you know if your right eye causes you to sin gouge it out if your left hand causes you to sin cut it off there's these temptations these boundaries these uh, levels of accountability and, and and fleeing that we should do when it comes to temptation but Jesus isn't showing any of those uh, tips for temptation here instead uh, what we're seeing is Jesus relying on God's covenant promise and so for us, when it comes to looking in, yes, we need to learn to run from sin. Yes, we should have systems of accountability. Yes, if sin is, uh, if we recognize sin in our life, it's better that we just cut it off and we run away. We don't try to manage it. We mangle it um, and we get it out of our life. But ultimately, when it comes to us and sin, Jesus looked at God's covenant promise and trusted in them. And for us as new covenant believers, we look to Jesus as the sign of God's covenant promise and we trust in him. Jesus shows us the wages of sin is death, that sin has this alluring song to satisfy, but it is a siren which kills us. And Jesus shows us that he and he alone, though he goes into the grave, is the only one who could promise life everlasting, resurrected life, true life. And so when it comes to temptation, initially we must look to this Christ. We must see that, that what satisfied Jesus, trusting in the covenant promise of God, can now satisfy us because Jesus has done the hard work for us. He has obeyed the letter of the law in our place. And now we get to believe in Jesus and all of that promise, all of the good promises of Deuteronomy, plans to, to bring you into a land, to give you cisterns you did not dig and houses you did not build and vineyards that you did not plant. That is the fruit of redemption. Jesus has given that to us. He has shown it to us and so we can in the face of sin choose to trust this Christ and not the whispers of Satan 
is in Jesus where we see our true identity. Because in Jesus, because he is the son of God, we are now sons and daughters of God. It is in Jesus where because our sin has been vindicated before God, God has seen the nastiness of your heart. We do not need to be vindicated. We do not need to pander to the uh, palate of culture, but instead we stand forgiven in his grace and say, God has vindicated us. And lastly, we can lay down the idea of laboring for our own glory and our own satisfaction in the world because we will worship the Lord your God and him only shall we serve because it is that God and that Jesus who has come to save us and satisfy us eternally. And one day Jesus will bring us not to the top of a mountain, but to a new heaven and a new earth where sin is finally defeated, temptation fully destroyed, and we get peace with God forever. Mm, that satisfies us, doesn't it? Isn't that what we need when it comes to resisting sin? And so that's what we see in looking in. And, and so what does this mean in looking out? Well, um, I kind of am just picking up on uh, one of the latter portions of chapter four, where Jesus calls his disciples to him. And we see this effective calling. They don't know who Jesus is, but he calls to them and they follow. And what a microcosm of our salvation, right? Uh, we follow Jesus because he effectively calls us to himself. And we answer his call like a smitten lover, not fully knowing what we're getting into, but knowing he has a power to call us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And what's interesting is all of these men, you know, drop their nets and follow Jesus. So the question I have us to just assess think about and maybe look for today um, when it comes to looking out is where does following Jesus show up in your life? Where does following Jesus show up in your life? And what's interesting is um, ultimately for most of these disciples, almost all of them, following Jesus shows up in their inevitable martyrdom, being killed on account of the gospel. But at this point, it just looks like leaving their careers. And so as you follow Jesus, um, you're going to know more about Jesus. You're going to be more in love with Jesus. And you're going to have more and more visible signs of what it looks like to follow Jesus. But at this point, this first point of um, responding to Jesus' call, they didn't fully know what it looked like to follow Jesus, but they left it all anyway. Right? And we are going to grow and understand Christ more. And we're going to have even more visible acts of following Jesus, of being a fisher of men, of discipling, of evangelizing, of, of caring for our co-workers or our spouses or our kids or serving in church. And those are going to come. But we ought to also be able to look back and see in the immediate the effective call of following Jesus. Where does that show up? How is my life different because of what Jesus has done? And now remember, up until this point, all we've seen is the wonderful power of Jesus in this text, that he is the Messiah. He is the prophesied one. He is the one who passes tests that we couldn't. And so when it comes to assessing uh, change in our life, we're not actually looking at our own merit. We're looking at signs of grace that God has already done inside of us through Jesus. And we are saying these ought to be there because Christ has called me to something different. And so when you think about this, um, where do you think those show up? What visible things in your life are you willing to lay down, leave, or love because of Christ? And uh, I, I want to share this quote from Spurgeon. He says this on this. He says, uh, when Christ calls us by his grace, we ought not only to remember what we are, but we ought also to think of what he can make us. It is follow me and I will make you. We should repent of what we have been, but rejoice in what we may be. 
In other words, we should repent that we were not sinners, but we might rejoice that we might be made into something by Jesus. It is not follow me because of what you already are. It is not follow me because you yourself may make something of yourself, but follow me because of what I will make you. It did not seem a likely thing that humble fishermen would develop into apostles, that men so handy with the net would be as much at home in preaching sermons and instructing converts. One would say, how can these things be? You cannot make founders of churches out of peasants of Galilee, but that is exactly what Christ did. And that is true for us too. When Christ calls us, he desires to make us something. And so let's take this moment and seeing the supremacy of Jesus and the power over temptation that's given to us in Jesus, defeating sin in our stead. And let's ask ourselves, where does this contrast show up in our life? This contrast of bearing fruit in keeping with repentance and being turned away because our works are not good enough, but being covered in the Christ who obeyed perfectly and called us to live life differently as followers of him. What does that look like in your life? Maybe have that conversation with uh, your your spouse today, maybe your roommate, someone in your community group, and uh, perhaps ask them the question, where do you see this in my life? Uh, and, and ask them to help you recognize that. Maybe you'll get encouragement from that. I pray you do, um, because one thing, we, we should expect to be encouraged. If Christ has done this, we should expect to be different. And that's part of what the body of Christ does, is we encourage what Jesus has already done in our life, because it's not a testament to our own might, but to Christ's might. Uh, and so that's what we look at today in Matthew 3 and 4. I love this passage. I pray um, that today, and that's what I'll pray for right now, that we are able to... Um, pass the test of worldly affirmation, vindication, and glory because we see that Jesus and Jesus alone is what, what gives us all of those things. Jesus and Jesus alone is what brings us into the glory of God, which satisfies us forever by taking our sins and giving us his perfect test-passing righteousness. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much um, that you have provided a new head, that the hope of history does not rely on us rising up and... Uh, rising above our station, being perfect, being excellent, but instead Christ has done all of that for us so that the burden of performance is lifted and now we have the joy of following. The joy not of making ourselves different, but the joy of being changed by the one who is different. The one whose sandals John was unworthy to untie, the one who's come to baptize us with fire, fully remaking us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for your word and for your church. We pray you be with us this week as we seek to, to see the points of contrast between those who follow Christ and bear fruit in keeping with repentance and those who refuse to see Christ as the way in which they need to be brought back to God. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Thanks, everyone. Have a good week. We will see you later.